join me in hearing the word of the Lord. This comes from Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please stand as we continue in our worship? My name is Ken Keen, and I'm the family ministry director here at Bethany Eastside. Before we jump in this morning, uh, will you join me in prayer? Lord God, who is in heaven, Lord, holy is your name. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray today that as we continue to think and talk through what it means for your kingdom to come, we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to show us how we are to participate in its coming. Lord, may the word spoken in this place be glorifying to you, and may the Holy Spirit in each of us Receive the message that you have prepared for us today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, as we jump in this morning, as we talk more about uh, the kingdom of God, as we talk about verse 4 of Matthew 5, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I hope that this moment in time is one that is really helpful for us in the midst of the fact that it is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, in the midst of the fact that this is the weekend before Inauguration Day. The poignancy of this moment in time to talk about mourning is not lost on me, and I hope it's not lost on you either. So as we've been thinking about this, you may see on the front of your bulletins uh, that the phrase for this sermon series is, can you see? Can you see it? And as, as I've been thinking through this phrase, this phrase has been running through my head all week, and the repetition of this phrase reminds me of a commercial that's maybe like 10 or 15 years old, and you, you might know it. It's a, a Verizon commercial, and there's a guy standing on the corner in a city, and he's on his phone, and the cars are whizzing by, and he says, can you hear me now? And apparently, the response is positive, because he says, good. And then the next scene cuts to this field. There's all these cows, and they're mooing, and he's in the middle of them, and he says, can you hear me now? Good. And finally, it gets its most ridiculous scene is the last one, of course, and he's hanging off the side of a mountain in the wind and the rain and the snow and the sleet, and he says, can you hear me now? And he says, good. I think the question for us this morning is similar. I think God is asking us this morning when it comes to, or in regards to his kingdom coming, the question is, can you see it yet? And I know that the answer that God desires for each of us is yes. But you know, if I'm honest with you this morning, when I look around in our culture and I see the pain, I see suffering, I see injustice, I see the horrors of Aleppo and the terror of the shootings in Dallas, when I think of those who are in fear of losing parts of their rights or their health care, when I see people that I loved, love dealing with the death of the ones they love, or when I sit with couples as the reality of starting a family is not happening the way that they thought it would, 
And I hear this question, can you see it yet? If I'm honest, sometimes I feel like saying no. I don't. But there's hope this morning. Because as we look at this verse, and as I have sat with this verse this week, when I've read, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, I found hope, and I hope that there's hope for you this week as well. So before we jump in, to rehash a little bit of what Travis shared with us last week, Travis pointed out and laid out a great definition for kingdom. He said, kingdom is a place where the will of the ruler is expressed. And the kingdom of God, which means if the kingdom of God is here, the range of God's effective will will be done. What God wants to be done will be done. So this morning, as we're holding things, these things together, we're reading together, right? Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. As I've sat with this verse this week, there's three observations that have come out to me that I want to share with you this morning. The first observation is that, um, that seeing precedes mourning. Seeing precedes mourning. The second observation is that mourning is part of discipleship. And the third observation this morning is that discipleship produces comfort through presence. So, as we jump into the first one, seeing precedes mourning. As I take a look at the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I see a lot of lament and a lot of mourning from those who are seeking the healing of Jesus Christ in the New Testament to the prophets of the Old Testament who are crying out to the Lord because they see the sin of Israel and they see that it is not what God has intended for them. I see the book of Psalms. This is the Psalter for Israel and honestly was the hymnal for Jesus. And as we look at those Psalms, almost 40% of those Psalms are about lament and mourning. And I find it interesting that in the midst of our culture, this is not part of the Christian heritage that we uphold. And we have to ask, we have to ask this, ourselves the question, why? I think, when I think about it, it has something to do with our culture. In America, I think we're kind of uncomfortable with a highly emotive part of mourning and lament. It's kind of messy, you know? And yet, the truth is that our journey as Christians isn't without struggle. You see, the Christian life is not immunity from suffering, but actually a life where God promises to walk with us in that suffering. That's the beautiful part of incarnation. That's the beautiful part about God coming in the form of Jesus to be with God's people. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that even Jesus wasn't immune to human suffering. And we're going to turn in our Bibles, if you have them, to John 11. So John 11 is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was one of Jesus' friends, and Lazarus was dying. And Jesus was in a nearby village, and Martha went to Jesus and said, Jesus, come, my brother is dying. Please come and heal him. Lord, we know you as healer. And so we pick up the story today in chapter 11, verse 28. So when Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. And they followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit, deeply moved, and Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, oh, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In this moment, Jesus was looking at the family of Lazarus and the friends of Lazarus. And in this moment, Jesus saw what God intended for Lazarus' life and the fact that Lazarus was dying. And in the midst of that, he saw the pain and the suffering of friends and family, and he too wept. Jesus saw and then mourned. I have a friend who is really close with my wife and I, and she works for World Relief. She's actually a caseworker there. And at the end of November, her husband and her and my wife and I we went hiking together. And just to remind you, the end of November was a bit of a tumultuous time for our country in light of the election. And I uh, remember being with her, and we, we had a kind of a long car ride to the mountains. And as we were driving, we were kind of rehashing what had happened in light of the election results and, and how that impacted each of us. And she shared a story with us and really a confession that she was having a really hard time going to work because every day she went to work with immigrants and refugees who were fearing for their new life in America. They were fearing that they would be sent back. They were fearing that they wouldn't have the health care they needed anymore to take care of their family. And she said, I've worked with these people for a couple of years now and I only have seen joy, so much excitement to be in this place, to be in this new place, to be given this new opportunity. And for the first time, I've seen fear and pain and suffering. And in the midst of that, I can't do anything but cry. My friend saw the pain and the suffering of these people, and she, she mourned with them. You see... In both cases, there's this place where the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are not meeting. There's dissonance. And mourning, our mourning, their mourning, is a response to the pain that is a byproduct of the dissonance between the way that the world is and the way that God intends for the world to be. So when God is asking, can you see it yet? God is truly asking, do you see the difference between the way the world is, the pain, the suffering, the injustice, and the way that the world is supposed to be? That first observation is that seeing precedes mourning. Our second observation this morning is that mourning is a part of discipleship. 
You see, when we step into mourning and challenge the dissonance, we are stepping into discipleship. So if we go to Matthew and we fast forward a couple chapters from 5 to verse 13, the disciples have been with Jesus for a while. They've walked with Jesus and they've witnessed his teaching and they ask Jesus this question. They say, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus' response to them is that the kingdom of God has been given to them, but not to those he he teaches. The reason, he says, is that when I speak in parables, seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen nor do they understand. The point that Jesus is getting to here is that because of the way the disciples have walked with him, they can understand the ways in which the Lord is moving and working. And later in the chapter, he commends them. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. As we just talked about this morning, seeing precedes mourning, and as the disciples saw the secrets of kingdom were revealed to them, hopefully, through our pursuit of Jesus Christ, we too will be able to see See, this is discipleship. Discipleship, quite simply, is the pursuit of transformation in our lives so our lives begin to look more like the life of Christ. And for some of you this morning, the question might be, why? Why should I follow? Why should I be a disciple? It sounds hard. And that question deserves a very long explanation, one that I'd be more than happy to talk to you about at any time. But I'll give you just this little snippet. The truth is, when I was thinking about this question this week, when I see the pain, the suffering, and the injustice in the world, without seeing it through the lens of Jesus Christ, I am hopeless. I am hopeless. But as we're reading this morning, blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. I follow Jesus Christ because Jesus provides hope. Along the way, as we walk with Jesus, as the disciples walked with Jesus, we too will see more of the dissonance between the way the world is and the way the world is supposed to be. But you know what? The interesting thing and the interesting part about following Jesus is that it's kind of like holding a mirror up to yourself. Because similar to the way that we'll see the dissonance in the world, we'll see the dissonance in ourselves, right? As I follow Jesus Christ, I see myself truly, and I see what God's intended for me. So in the Kuhn household, in the Emily and Ken Kuhn household, uh, Sunday afternoons pretty much always look like the same thing. We go home, we have lunch together, we meal plan, we go grocery shopping, we do our chores, lots of chores, and then we hang out in the evening together. And at the end of the last quarter, I actually had, my last final was due on Monday. And so I went home and we had lunch and I really needed to work on my finals. And so Emily very graciously said, don't worry about it, I'll meal plan, I'll go grocery shopping, I'll do the chores, you work on your paper, so hopefully we still have some time to hang out this evening. I said, okay, great plan. So I worked on my stuff, Emily got her stuff done, we hung out that night, and then the next day I finished my final, felt great, 
sent a little text message to everybody saying, I'm done, and it was awesome. And then Emily texted me and said she was on her way home. So I went down to the kitchen, I grabbed the recipe off the top of our recipe stack because I knew this was the one that we were going to be doing tonight, and I read the title, I was like, all right, what are we making? And it said, pasta alfredo with peas. And my response was, peas? I don't even like peas. Doesn't she know I don't like peas? And then I just brooded for like 10 minutes about the fact that there was peas in my dinner. And then she came home and she walked in the door. She was super excited to spend the evening with me and celebrate the fact that my finals were over. And this was my response. Don't you know I don't like peas? And I just watched as her demeanor changed, as she went from excitement to pain and hurt. I had hurt her. She came home expecting to celebrate. She came home expecting gratitude and thankfulness, which she deserved. But that's not what she was met with. She was met with the assault of my selfishness. See, it's in these places where we need to look at ourselves. And while this may be a small, silly little peas problem, the truth is that the issues go much deeper than that. See, part of becoming more like Christ is mourning the places in our own lives where we don't look like the way God intends for us to be. And it's also seeing the ways the world doesn't look like the world is supposed to be. Mourning is part of discipleship. For our third observation this morning, discipleship produces comfort through presence. You know, if we look back at Matthew 5, 4, the only thing that we really haven't talked about yet is comfort. And when I was thinking about this verse this week, I was like, oh yeah, how? Like, how does that happen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted? Okay. And so I was searching and searching and searching, and I came upon this. In all of my very uh, intellectual studies, as I've been taught in seminary, I looked toward the Greek. And the Greek word for comfort here is parakaleo. This word actually might sound familiar, Um, because it is the verb that is derived from the same word, same root word, as paraclete. Paraclete, when translated from the Greek, is advocate or the one that is with us. This is also the name that is commonly used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So the type of comfort that is being talked about here is comfort of withness, God with us, each of us with one another. So now this is where things start to get tricky, right? Because if we're called to be with one another, sometimes that's a lot easier than other times. If I'm honest with myself, there's some things where I say, I can empathize with that. I have suffered in that same way. I've experienced that pain. I know you don't like peas either. It's okay. But then I realize that more often than not, The pain and the suffering of someone else is completely different than something that I've experienced before, right? And the question becomes, then what do I say? How do I move into that place? I cannot fathom the pain that you're going through because you're a unique person. And all people perceive the world around them differently. And I try to enter into that space and I don't know what to say. And I think that might be the point. I don't think we're supposed to say anything. I think the point of blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted with someone is the fact that you're with them 
not that you have something to say to them. This point is shown to us a little bit clearer in the story of Job. Job is an Old Testament book, and Job's story is one where Job is the protagonist of the story, and his life is greatly blessed. He has lots of land, lots of animals, lots of wealth, lots of children, and a beautiful wife. Job's life is great. And as the story progresses, we quickly find out that all of these blessings that Job has given were very quickly taken away. No more land, no more family. And in the midst of that, he's wrought with pain and suffering. In fact, even his health is in decline. But Job 2.11 says that Job had three friends. And when they heard of all this evil that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, for they had made an appointment to come together to mourn with him and to comfort him. See, there's no way that Job's friends could empathize with Job in this. There's no way that they could understand all of these conditions that had happened. Sure, maybe some of them had lost some crops. Maybe one or two of them had lost a child or a wife, we don't know. But the point is that there's no way that each of them could have empathized with each of them and with, with him. And nonetheless, they came, they stood with to comfort him. I uh, found a couple of other scholars uh, over the course of the week that I feel like speak to this issue really well. The first is theologian and scholar Henry Nouwen. Nouwen says, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face us with the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. Another scholar that I greatly admire, Brene Brown, a scholar of vulnerability and empathy, says, there are many things in this world that are not as they ought to be. But no one reaches out to you for compassion or empathy so you can teach them how to behave better. In fact, she says, they reach out to us because they believe in our capacity to know our darkness well enough to sit in the dark." I agree with them. There are many things in this world that do not and are not as they ought to be, some of which we can understand, but most of which we can barely fathom. And in the midst of this dissonance, as followers of Christ, as those of us who are going to step into discipleship, we are, call we are called to comfort one another and to mourn together. All right, the third observation this morning, discipleship produces comfort through presence. So to conclude this morning, uh, sometimes to help us see better, we need to listen to voices that see the world differently than we do. And because it is Martin Luther King weekend, junior weekend, I thought it would be apt to hear from the doctor reverend himself. See, Dr. King uh, is going to challenge us this morning to look at the world and see it in a way that leads us to dissatisfaction. 
And in the midst of this dissatisfaction, the question becomes, how are we going to enter into that? So listen now as we receive a word from Dr. Reverend King. So I conclude by saying today that we have a task and let us go out with a divine dissatisfaction. Let us be dissatisfied until America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Let us be dissatisfied until the tragic walls that separate the outer city of wealth and comfort from the inner city of poverty and despair shall be crushed by the battering rams of the forces of justice. Let us be dissatisfied until they live on the outskirts of hope, are brought into the metropolis of daily security. Let us be dissatisfied until slums are cast into the junk heaps of history and every family will live in a decent sanitary home. Let us be dissatisfied until the dark yesterdays of segregated schools will be transformed into bright tomorrows of quality, integrated education. Let us be dissatisfied until integration is not seen as a problem, but as an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. Let us be dissatisfied until men and women, however black they may be, will be judged on the basis of the content of that character, not on the basis of the color of that skin. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every state capital be housed by a governor who will do justly, who will love mercy, and who will walk humbly with his God. Let us be dissatisfied. Until from every city hall, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. Let us be dissatisfied. Men will recognize that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. Dr. King's context is so much different than ours, right? And as I heard this and listened to this and processed this soundbite uh, this week, I realized that many of the things that Dr. King was talking to are things that I can barely fathom. And furthermore, are points of injustice that still exist in our country today. I think that it's in the midst of this place where I look out and I see the kingdom of the world 
and I see the hopeful coming of the kingdom of God, and I see dissonance in this space. I hope you see that dissonance too. Dissonance in the world around you, dissonance in your own life, dissonance on behalf of a friend. It's in this space, it's in this dissonance that we are called to step into because Jesus stepped into that space first. And so I'm gonna ask Nick to come forward and he's gonna play his guitar. And I wanna create space this morning for us to practice what it means to mourn together. It's tricky, it's complicated, it's messy, sometimes highly emotional, but it's what we're called to as people. So this morning, I'll, I'll reveal my hand. The goal is for us all to stand together. And so I'm going to uh, read through a list of things that you may find yourself dissatisfied with this morning. And as you experience a place where you find dissatisfaction or grief or hurt or pain, suffering or injustice, I ask you to stand this morning. And as we stand together, we are taking that first small step towards what it looks like to be together, to experience withness in mourning. And so uh, the, the first one today is uh, if you're facing a, a personal grief, a personal grief from, from poverty or broken relationship, disease, or death. If this is you this morning, I challenge you to stand. Stand and allow those around you to stand with you. And this morning, if you're experiencing and you're grieving on behalf of someone else, if you're walking with someone else through the valley of what seems like death in their life, stand. Stand. And if you find yourself this morning moved by the words of Dr. King, if you are mourning for our city, for our nation, for our world right now, in some specific way, please stand. 